All right, Luke 9, 18 through 27. <clears throat> now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that the one of the prophets of the old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed, when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Father, thank you for your word. This could be the greatest passage that we need or we will ever read or hear. So I thank you, you put it in the Bible. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. That you would shed the grace of God in our hearts. For those that do not know you, that you would take away their veil so they could see you clearly for who you are. And for those of us that you've worked, done that work in our hearts, Lord, that we would, we would see this afresh. We'd see this anew. We would, we would see this and worship you like no other time. Lord, you are good. You are gracious. And Lord, we thank you that we have this question before us today. The most important question we will answer, who is Jesus? So Lord, my prayer is that everyone, as we walk out these doors, would have the answer and the confession to that question this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, go ahead. Have a seat. Speaking of questions, a good question or good questions is and are some of the most powerful forces in the world and in your life. Questions are powerful, are they not? I want you to think about your life and think about some of the questions that you had to answer in your life to get you to where you are today. Think about some of those questions. Uh, what you wanted to do with your life, what college you wanted to do, who you wanted to marry, who you didn't want to marry, right? Think about that. A good question is one of the most powerful forces in your life. If you're a student, uh, whether you're in class at, at, a, at a high school, elementary school, middle school, whether you're at college, a good question can help you learn and grow. Good questions help us navigate relational dynamics, right? Uh, husband-wife relationships, parent-children relationships, friend and friend. They, they help us navigate the relationships that we are in. They, good questions give us clarity on our financial uh, decisions. Uh, again, what career do I want to pursue? What am, I, what am I looking for in a spouse? Huh? It helps businesses make correct decisions to, to make money and impact their communities. It helps medical, those in the medical fields, doctor, nurses, physical therapists, to diagnose the problem and then give the correct remedy. Good questions at a, at a huge level of our decision-making are, are incredibly important, incredibly powerful. But also, good questions can bring us joy in the most practical little things, right? 
Like, I love going to the South and visiting my uh, son, Stephen, or Madison in the South. I have sons in South Carolina, one's in Florida. And typically when I go to the restaurant there, I, I forget where I'm at. I keep on thinking I'm in Colorado until I get there. And then I'm at breakfast and I order an iced tea. And the good question is, what do you want that regular or do you want that sweet? Give me the sweet tea, right? Like you can have sweet tea for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm like, who is with me in the sweet tea in the South? Go ahead and raise your hand. Oh man, sweet tea brings you joy. And, and there's probably a reason why I come back 10 pounds heavier from South to South, right? But I don't care. It's a good question in the simplest ways. Well, a good question, again, is one of the most powerful forces in the world today. Not only in the world, but in your lives. And they're good when they're asked by our spouse, when they're asked by a, a friend, a counselor, a co-worker, a teacher, but they're even better when they're asked by Jesus. They're even better when Jesus is the one presenting the question to you. And that's what we have this morning. This morning, we have Jesus asking you and me a couple questions. In fact, these are the most important questions you will ever, I will ever answer in our lifetime, period. And that's not an overstatement. That's not hyperbole. That is true. Because when Jesus asks you and me a question, he's just, he, he's just not asking a surface level question. He's getting to the heart and to the core of who we are and what we need. He drills down into your soul and my soul with his question. And so this is not an overstatement or hyper. This is the most important question you will answer because the answer to this question will ultimately set the tone of your life from now and forevermore. How you answer these questions will set the tone for your life for now and forevermore. It will have an eternal significance. And what is that question? Well, I'm glad you guys asked. The question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? See, it's in answering that question, who is Jesus? Because if you get that question, not only if you answer it right, but you believe it to be true, you experience its truth, then it's going to answer all the great questions that you will ever have. Like, why am I here? Who am I as a person? What is my purpose here on earth? And how do I live? You answer that question, who is Jesus? Then all those other questions get answered. So that's the question we're going to answer this morning. That's the question that Jesus is asking you this morning. Who is Jesus? And we find the answer in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 20. Take a look. Now quickly, we're again, we're getting back into the Gospel of Luke. We go through line by line, verse by verse, books through the Bible. If you're new here, we're teaching through the book of, of Luke. And Luke chapter 9 is a massive turning point in the Gospel. It's a massing turning point in the gospel of Jesus' life and the life of his disciples. Because since Luke chapter 4, after his baptism, he was sent out into the desert. And since then, his public ministry has been going. He's been doing public ministry primarily up in the north, north of Jerusalem in this in the Sea of Galilee region, in the Galilean region. He's, he's been up north. He hasn't been down in Jerusalem, which is the central point of the pinnacle of the Jewish faith. He's been up north. And it's here in Luke 9.18 that Jesus makes the turn to set His face towards Jerusalem, to set His face 
towards the cross. To set His face towards death. He was born to die so that you and I might live. And now, this is about two and a half years in His ministry, He has made that turn. And now He is taking Himself and He's taking His disciples to Jerusalem. Luke 9.22 says this, the Son of Man, look at that next word, must. Just circle that word. The Son of Man must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed on a cross. And then He must raise on the third day. This is why Jesus has come. So He will save your soul and my soul from sin, from death, and from hell itself. And so now it's a dramatic. He's turning His face towards Jerusalem. Now, strangely, He doesn't go from Galilee straight south. He actually goes north to this place called Caesarea Philippi. And we actually get this detail in Matthew's account in Matthew 16 or Mark's account in Mark chapter 8. Matthew 16, 13 says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, so Jesus actually takes his disciples north, not south. That's like saying like, hey, I want to go to Colorado Springs, but I got to go there through Cheyenne. It's like, what? That doesn't make sense. Why would you go to Cheyenne before you go to Colorado Springs? Well, there's a reason for that. We're going to look at that in a moment. But first, let me just give you some context in which these questions are asked by Jesus. What is Caesarea Philippi? Caesarea Philippi, again, was 25 miles basically north of, uh, of Jerusalem in the Sea of Galilee region. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, back in Genesis chapter 6, was where Jewish tradition said the Nephilim lived. The Nephilim. If you guys are, know what the Bible is, that's when the sons of God had relationships with the women, and they created these, just these giants. This region in the Old Testament was known as Bashan. Uh, Bashan, it was a wicked place, a, uh, an evil place, a perverse place. Uh, it was known later for the prominence of the worship of Baal. Think Jezebel in, in Elijah. It's a, uh, the root of Baal was sensuality. Sensuality. Uh, was involved ritualistic, you know, orgies in the temple and human sacrifices sometimes. And then it went on to become a place where the Greek god Zeus and, and Pan, this man goat, kind of think Mr. Timnus and the Lion, Witch of the Wardrobe, that's where they were worshipped. And finally, it, it, around this time, it's, it's dedicated to, to uh, Caesar worship, Augustus Caesar. It's just people come to worship the emperors of Rome. It was known back then as the gateway to the underworld. The gateway to the underworld, to the realm of the dead. It was known as the gateway to hell or Hades in Jesus' time. we got a couple pictures of it here. Uh, we can see this is what it looks like today. Some of you that have visited Israel have been here. I know Cole Strayler and I were talking this week, and he has, he has stepped his foot right here where these people are. This is where people believe, where Jesus would have been teaching. Jesus would have been standing as people would be going into this, this cave-like thing to worship and to give their sacrifices to all these different idols. This is the context. This is the place that Jesus is asking these questions. And this is what He says in Luke 9, verse 18. He says, now it happened that he, Jesus, was praying alone, which is routine for Jesus. You do a theme in the book of Luke. It's, it's Jesus got away to pray. And every time Jesus gets away to pray in the book of Luke, he's about to do something special or he's about to say something incredibly profound. And the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Again, Jesus is here standing. He's seeing all these crowds that have been following him. They're going to this place and he asks a question to his disciples. Hey, who do the, who do, what does the culture say that I am? In other words, he's saying, like, what's the word on the street? 
What's the word on the street? Hey, hey, pull out your phones. What, what, is, what is Twitter or what X now, whatever it is now? What, 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 what's the feed saying about me? Pull up those YouTube, you know, short, shortcuts and TikTok. And what, what, what's, the, what's the culture saying about who am I? Who am I? That's what's happening. And they answer, Luke 19, uh, Luke 9, verse 19. And they answer, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say just a prophet that's risen from old. And it's like, bingo, they nailed it. It's the same question that one of the most powerful guys in the region, King Herod, asked last week in, in uh, Luke chapter 9, 7 through 9. It's like, who is this guy? Is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Is he another prophet? Like, who is this guy? And those are actually good answers. I mean, you think about it. Think through of who these guys were. Who was John the Baptist? John was a Baptist, was this crazy dude that had this great, profound message of repent, repentance. And when he would speak, crowds would come out to him. And then he wasn't afraid to call out the, the religious hierarchy. He didn't care who you were. John the Baptist would call you out if you weren't following the Lord. And you're like, man, yeah, that sounds like Jesus. Jesus preached the gospel, message of repentance. He, he called out the religious elites. That sounds like Jesus. How about Elijah? Elijah in Old Testament is probably the most well-known prophet, especially for his miracles and his healings. Remember in, in um, 1 Kings 17, Elijah raises a widow's boy to life. And then we just saw a couple weeks ago in Luke chapter 7, Jesus did the same thing in the same region. He raised a widow's boy to life. So they're thinking like, man, is this Elijah? Because of the very last verses in Malachi... The very last verses in the Old Testament that were ever written, it says that a one like Elijah was going to come. One like Elijah was going to come back before the day of the Lord. He was going to turn hearts. Could this be Elijah? So it's like, man, that, yeah, that, that, that might be a good idea or a good, good answer. The other is just a prophet of old has risen. More general, Matthew in his account says, <coughs> like Jeremiah. Now, all these seem to be good answers, right? When you think about it, it, it seems like the culture kind of acknowledged that there was something different about Jesus, that he was, he was some kind of prophet, right? He, he spoke with authority. His teachings had authority. He could cast out demons. He could heal people. He could do miracles. It's like, man, maybe this is Elijah. I mean, John the Baptist, Elijah, I mean, those are Hall of Famers back in that day, right? Those are, those are, the, those are the cream of the crop in the Jewish religion. But it was still a big swing and miss. So close, yet so far. Because they didn't truly get Jesus and who He was. You see, because all the prophets, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, Malachi, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the prophets, every prophecy was pointing to the coming Messiah. The difference was, everything Jesus did was not pointing to, it was, like it was proving that He was the Messiah. You see, Jesus was not... You can't love Jesus, lump Jesus in with just a bunch of other prophets. He's in a category all by Himself. He's not just another prophet. He's just not another good teacher. He is the very begotten Son of God and Son of Man. And, 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 and we, not much has changed Today, after this gathering, you go down to Old Town and you have a little mic and you're like, hey, who is Jesus? What answers are you going to get? You're going to get what you got back then. You're going to get, oh, he was a, a great teacher, 
Ah, he was a, a moral leader. Ah, he, he, he had compassion on those less fortunate. He, he showed us how to do social justice well. He was just one of the many holy men that we've seen throughout Scripture. He's been one of the many prophets that spoke on behalf of God in history, like Muhammad, like Buddha, like Gandhi. Again, not much has changed culturally. And so this moves us, and this helps Jesus prep His disciples for the next question, the greater question. Jesus asked His disciples the most important question, and it's not only asking them back then, but He's asking you this morning. Look at verse 20. Then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? I want you to circle that word, you. Underline that word, you. In the original language, that word is emphatic. It means it's emphasized. I mean, everything revolves around that. Jesus is saying, who do you say that I am? He's looking at them in their eyes. Who do you say that I am? How do you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? He's making direct eye contact and emphasizing, but yeah, that's what the culture says, but who do you say that I am? Aaron? And Peter answers for all the disciples. And listen, it's not just a correct answer. It's a confession. It's a testimony. Peter is testifying He's just not stating the correct fact. He's confessing what his heart believes. He says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. You, you go to Old County, you ask people who Jesus Christ is, they'll say that's his last name. Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. It's a title. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. It means Savior. And that's what Peter and the disciples are saying. Who is Jesus? They finally get it right. He's the Christ. He's the Savior of the world that has come to save His people. It's amazing. One, it's amazing because Christ stepped out of heaven, became man, and dwelt among us. That's amazing enough. The second thing is amazing is that this is the first time in the gospel accounts that any human being got that correct. Up until this point, it was just God the Father, Jesus' baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased, Luke chapter 3. It was the, 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 the demons that he would come in contact with when they said, oh, hey, Jesus, don't cast me out. We know that you're the son of man. They got it right. But no other human got it right until now. So that's an amazing thing. This is, a, again, a massive transition in the gospel. And who did it come through? It came through Peter. It's like Peter finally took his foot out of his mouth and said something correct for once, right? So we got to give Peter props. He recognized who Jesus was. But the question is, well, why did it finally click? Did something happen to him that they finally saw who Jesus was? And the answer is, absolutely, yes, something happened. In Matthew 16, in their account, he gives us more of the detail. And this is what it said. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you, you, didn't, you didn't know it on your own self, but my Father who is in heaven. What happened to the disciples? The grace of God happened to the disciples. The grace of God infiltrated their hearts 
opened their eyes to see Jesus for who He truly was the first time. Not flesh and blood, but God the Father. They weren't moved by the cultural elites or popular opinion. They were moved by God the Father and His grace. Who or what are you swayed by regarding Jesus? What, what, what moves your soul? Who is Jesus to you? Do, do you just have an answer? Or do you have a confession? Do you have a testimony? Has He penetrated your heart? Where you, like Peter and the disciples, and say, you are the Christ. And not only are you are the Christ, but you are my Savior. Is that how you confess and answer that question? Do you believe Luke 9.22? Again, this is the first time, and this is clear on who Jesus is, that He truly is. Again, this is showing that He is proving He's the Christ because He actually, verse 22 is actually a prophecy of what's about to take place when He says, look, the Son of Man must come. He must suffer some things. He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He is going to be killed. We know it's going to be on a cross. And then on the third day, He says, I'm going to rise again from the dead. That hasn't happened yet. So this is like a stunning statement to the disciples in the crowd. They're like, what? What's, what, what's going on? You're going you're gonna to go down there. You're going to suffer. You're going to die. You're going to be raised again. What? We look back on that. And we see that Jesus is the one that did fulfill that prophecy. He is the Messiah. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus came to die for your sins? Is He your Savior? Is He your Lord? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus? That's the offer today. If you don't know Jesus, He is offering you life, salvation, forgiveness, mercy, grace. He is offering you the abundant life that you are seeking. Who is Jesus? There's no greater question for you to answer do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you want to know why you're here? Do you want to know who you are? Do you want to know how to live? It begins right here. Who do you believe is the Christ? Peter confesses. After Peter's confession, we see in verse 21 that Jesus tells him not to to tell anyone, which is kind of weird. It kind of doesn't make sense. Like, if this is the greatest question you're ever going to answer, and we answered it correct, God the Father said, this is right. You got it right. God put that in your heart. Why don't we tell anyone? Well, it's different for us because we, again, we are looking back on this side of the cross, and, and our command is Matthew 28 to tell everyone about Jesus. But right then, back then, they had different views. They had wrong expectations of who the Messiah was. They, they were thinking He was going to be a military Savior and save them from the oppression of Rome. And so Jesus says, no, i, I got to go to the cross. If, 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 we got, if the Word got out, we'd have a whole nation rally around and we'd have like a war. That's not what I want. I've come to war against sin and death and hell. That's why I came, as first and foremost, as the suffering Messiah. So He says, don't tell anyone yet. Don't tell anyone yet. Now, I want us to bring us back to why Jesus went north to Caesarea Philippi before going down to Jerusalem. This is so good. This, this, this will get you 
fired up. Remember, they're standing at, at, at this cave. This conversation is happening at the mouth, at the demonic headquarters of all these different world religions and philosophies. This is the, the, the doormat, the front doormat of Satan himself and the false deities of, the, of those in the Old Testament of the Greeks and of the Romans. He, he's standing at the entranceway of the gates of hell and he makes this declaration. It is here that Jesus puts the world on notice, puts Satan on notice, puts all the false deities on notice that the King of Kings is here and he's about to go to work. In Matthew 16, 18, after the confession that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus says, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's about this point that Jesus is saying, I have come to destroy all the strongholds. I've come to destroy sin. And I've come to set the captives free. I love how one says it. One says this, Jesus is on the attack here. He is deciding, he is declaring war on sin, evil, and the devil. He says, in effect, I'm going to bury you. And then I'm going to build my church on top of you. Again, we, after we answer who is Jesus, we live, we live from a, a place of victory and not being a victim. Jesus is the king. He is the one ruling right now. Yes, the first time he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and praise God. But this has given us a little glimpse into that he is the lion, the king of Judah. And Revelation 19 says when he comes back a second time, it's not going to become as the lamb, the suffering servant. It's coming as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is going to put an end in all to sin, death, and hell. And he's going to raise us up to glory in heaven who are with him. So listen, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history in that day. You don't want to be in Luke 9, 26 and found ashamed of Jesus. You want to be the one who says, you are the Christ. You are my Messiah. Who do you say Jesus is? Can you see why this is the most important question for you and me to answer? Because our life and eternity depends on it. So that's the most important question, which leads us to the second question. If we say that Jesus is our Christ, if he is our Lord, if he is our our Savior, then the next question is found in Luke 9, 23, 27. What does Jesus call us to do? What does it look like to follow Jesus? And look at verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is this? This is what a true disciple looks like. A true disciple follows Jesus and denies himself. That's like justification. That's like salvation. That's coming to faith in Jesus. You, you deny yourself. You deny yourself self-worship, your self-sacrifice, and you save yourself. You put your faith in Jesus. You follow him. That's justification. And secondly, is sanctification. You take up your cross and you follow him daily. You live out what you believe. And it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. This is the true call of a disciple. So let's, let's just kind of highlight some of these things. What, what does it look like to deny yourself? What, what does it look like to deny yourself? This is not talking about asceticism. 
And what I mean by that, it's not talking about extreme self-denial. It's not saying that, hey, to be a Christian, you have to give up certain foods or certain drinks, or you can't have that house, or you can't buy that car, or you can't buy nice clothes. That's not what denying yourself means here. It might in some cases, but that's not what it means here. It's much deeper than that. It's a greater denial. It's a denial that apart from Christ that we all have, and that is self-worship. That is self-salvation. That is self-exaltation. That we all, apart from Christ, see ourselves as little gods in our little world, and we do everything to protect it. We are the last answer for Aaron apart from Christ. And again, this affects us all. That's your greatest problem, and that's my greatest problem across, apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we want to live at the center of the universe. One said it this way, apart from Christ, we are all bent towards reducing life towards all my needs, all my wants, and all my desires, regardless of who it affects. And that's so true. When, when I think of that, I always go back, I don't know why, but I always go back to the, the movie Nemo. And um, the, the, the uh, seagulls, right? Mine, 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 mine. I mean, that's, that's who we are. We're the seagulls. It's like everything is mine, 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 mine. That's what we want apart from Christ. So I want you to hear this, though. Jesus wants you to have a full life, a joyful life. He wants you to enjoy the physical pleasures of this world. He wants you to have an emotional joy. He wants you to, he wants you to be well-fed spiritually. He said in John 10.10, 10, I've come to have what? Life and have it abundantly. And finding Jesus, you find abundant life. He's not a cosmic killjoy. And Jesus is saying here, the way toward that abundant life is to deny yourself and follow Jesus. So what, what might that look like practically? It might look like this practically. Because again, this isn't just for the non-Christian or the Christian. Both can fall into this category. Both can fall into self-worship. Both can, both can say like, oh, I want to be the king of my own kingdom. But this is how it begins. It begins by thinking and praying and obeying like Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right before he's about to go to the cross, you guys remember the scene, he's praying. The cross is just a couple days from him. He understands what that means. He's, he's in deep anguish. He's in, he's, 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 he's so, it's so intense that he's starting to sweat drops of blood. His little capillaries above the surface of his skin are starting, to, are starting to break because he's so stressed about what he's about to endure. And what does he say? Not my will be done, but your will be done. This is practically how we deny ourselves on a daily basis. We follow after Jesus. We take that phrase, not my will be done, but your will be done in heaven. And that's going to help us live out practically on denying ourselves. You want a godly marriage? You want a marriage that's going to work? I've been, I've been counseling marriages, thousands of marriages for the past 20 plus years. If we could all get this, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to myself right now. Because I still do this. When my marriage struggles, it's because I'm saying my will be done, not your will be done. That's the same with you. Do you find yourself struggling in marriage right now? Just check your heart. And are you denying yourself? To love and serve my spouse. 
I want the will of the Lord to be done, even when they don't deserve it. Forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven me and not holding a root of bitterness against them by giving them the silent treatment. So I get my will. No, I want to have the Lord's will be done. How about in your friendships? How about in your friendships? The reason why your friendships might struggle is because you're like, my will be done. Not your will be done, Lord. Some of you might be living with some roommates that are messy, right? That have blown up the kitchen with all the pots and pans. They're all dirty. They're all just sitting there in the sink. And you're like, again, one more time. I see a lot of you guys smiling, right? And I'm just hitting you right in the home. Your will be done, Lord. Extend grace to them. Treat others more important than yourself. Lay down your life for them and do the dishes. How about at work? Your will be done. That you and I, we, we work for the glory of God so that, so that our presence at work, when people see you come into work, they actually want to be around you. They don't turn and walk a different way. Because when you come in, you promote unity. You promote a culture of joy. You promote encouragement. You put up... You build things up and you build people up and you don't tear down. This is what it looks like to deny yourself. It's not my will be done, but your will be done. As you walk out those days practically, have that phrase on your mind when you have these difficult questions or these difficult situations come up. Have that at your arsenal. Remember, it is written. Remember we talked about that in spiritual warfare? Have some it is written. Here's an it is written. Not my will be done, but your will be done, Lord. Now, also, typically, when we, when we see passages like that, like this, deny ourselves, we typically think, and rightfully so, we ask this question, what, what's it going to cost me? If I deny myself, what's it going to cost me? It's going to cost me something, Right? And that's a good question. Jesus, following Jesus, we want you to ask that question. What is it going to cost me? Because it might cost you something. In fact, he says it's going to cost you some kind of suffering because you're going to have to bear your cross. A cross back then when the disciples heard that, that was a, that was a reference to death and suffering. It wasn't just a cool piece of jewelry that, that we wear around today, right? It'd be like us wearing an electric chair around our cross, Right? That's what they would associate with it. You've you got to count the cost. It's, it's a good thing to count the cost. You want to ask that question. But after you ask that question, you ask this question as well. Not only what is it going to cost me, but what am I going to gain? What am I going to gain from following Jesus? What am I going to gain from denying myself? And Jesus gives us three answers quickly in verses 24 through 26. He gives us three fours, F-O-R. You see those three fours in Scripture? Circle them, because that tells you the why you and I should deny ourselves. This is what we gain, because if you don't deny yourself, verse 24 says you're going to lose your life, you're going to forfeit yourself, and you're going to be ultimately humiliated in verse 26, where Jesus will be ashamed of you. That's kind of the negative way. Now I want to point this out real quickly in verse 24. Verse 24 says, whoever will try and save his or her life will lose it. Uh, circle that word life there. It's very, it's a, because in the original language, the word life there is not zoe, which means biological life or, or quality of life. It's suke. It means identity. 
It's talking about who you are at the core of your being. That's your life. Whoever wants to save their identity, whoever wants to save who they are, will lose it if you build it on the things of this world. Listen, this is what Jesus is saying. If you try and save your life, if you try and build your identity on the things of this world that they offer you, at some point, you're going to lose yourself. You're going to lose who you are at your core. You're going to struggle. You're going to crumble. Because those things, the things of the world, listen, listen, Having a, a spouse, having a great job, having some money in the bank, that, that's not bad. Those are, those are good things to have. But if you build your life on those things as ultimate, as the foundation of who you are, then you're going to struggle. You're going to lose your life. And again, if you try and build your identity on relationships, career, money, what you find out is when those things start to fall apart, and eventually all those will, will start to fall apart, your, your marriage at some point is going to start to struggle. Your friendships, that bestie of yours that you thought was your bestie, and all of a sudden is your greatest enemy, when that, when that starts to crumble, when you start to see your money not be able to do what it used to do, and it starts to crumble, what happens? You start to crumble. You start to lose it. If your life is built on the things of this world, if that's where you're building your identity. Again, this is for the Christian and the non-Christian. We as Christians fall into this temptation even more so and we should know better, but we still can do this. I mean, do you find yourself always angry? Always frustrated? Maybe even always depressed? This is like a good test to be like, hey, what are you building your life on? What are you building your identity on? The things of this world? Are you building on my will be done or are you building on the Lord's will be done? I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says this, kind of sums this all up. He says, give up yourself and you will find yourself. You will find your real self, your true self. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And listen, not only will you find him, but he says this, and with him, everything else is thrown in. With him, everything else is thrown in. And that we say yes and amen. Here's the reality. This is the upside down kingdom. If you truly want to find yourself, if you truly want to find your life, you deny yourself and you pursue God. And that's where you're going to find life. That's where you're going to find life abundantly. And when the, the struggles come in marriage or in relationships or in your bank account or in your career, when those things maybe start to shake a little bit, you'll be able to stand firm because your life is built on the rock of Christ Jesus. And so in the negative, Jesus says you'll lose your life, you'll, lose, you'll forfeit yourself, and you'll be humiliated. But here's the positive. If you deny yourself and you build your life on Christ, verse 24, you save your life. You gain your soul. You gain security, you gain joy, you gain peace. You gain a proud and everlasting father that's not ashamed of you, but looks at you and says, I love you, son. Those are like three big categories. Let me just kind of throw in a a handful of promises of God of what you gain when you answer the question correctly, who is Jesus? 
First of all, you gain all the promises in this book. And there's way too many to account for. Because it says in Romans 8, uh, Romans 8 that we are identities, that we are children of the King. We are His kids. That means we have an inheritance that we get to enjoy forever. He'll give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. Are you walking through a trial right now? Through some of the deepest and darkest moments in my life, I have a weird juxtaposition that happens into me. Some of those things, like I've shared before with some of you guys, that my, my mom passed away on Christmas Eve at a party one time. It was devastating to me, but I was also like, I had this incredible peace because I knew she knew the answer to that question. She confessed that Jesus was the Christ. She was in heaven. And so while I was, I was devastated that she was not with me, I also had a joy because I know she was in heaven not suffering anymore. One day I'll be with her forever. Do you have that peace? He will work all things together for good to those who love God. Romans chapter 8. In other words, even the, the stuff that hurts, the suffering, the trials, the death, the despair, all that stuff that happens in our life, He's going to use that for our good. Now, we might not understand that, but that's a promise that I can, I can say that He has fulfilled over and over again in my 20 plus years. And if you're not a Christian, you don't have that promise. We gain freedom from the bondage of sin. We gain that He gives us rest and relieves our burdens. Matthew chapter 11, my burden is light. I will remove the heavy burdens from you. He gives us wisdom from above. We need wisdom. We need understanding. He gives that to us freely. It says He will give us the desires of our heart if we delight in Him. You want the desires of your heart? Fix your eyes. Follow Christ. And He does something amazing. He gives you His desires that you love, you enjoy, you pursue, you fulfill. And it's like, whoa! Are you serious? I get to do this? Yes. You get the desires of your heart. He meets all your needs according to his riches. He will be your shepherd and lead and protect you with goodness and mercy. Even in the valleys, he will never, listen, he will never forsake you. Have you ever been betrayed? He will never betray you. He will always be there. He will answer every prayer. And here's the best one. Revelation 3. He will never blot your name out of the Lamb's book of life. You'll always be His child. Those He predestined will reach glory. There are no dropouts. He loses none of them. No one can snatch you out of His hand. That is a massive gain. What else do you want? What else do you want from life? Hope, peace, security. Everything working out for my good and my joy. Salvation. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding. What, what else is there? He's going to give you all that. He's a father that loves to give good gifts. So don't even ask yourself when he talks about denying, what, what do I lose? But what do you gain? You actually gain the best things of the world. And not only the world, but eternity. He ends in verse 27, just this verse real quickly. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is not talking about the second coming of Christ. I think what this is talking about is a lot of different opinions. 
but he's talking to his, to his disciples. And again, this is a massive turning point in the book of Luke. And he's saying like, you got the answer correctly. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. And now you're going to, now that you understand that, you're going to see and experience the power of God in your life and what I'm about to do. And next week you're going to hear from, you're going to see the transfiguration. This is part of the prophecy of becoming true, that people are seeing the kingdom of God. And it's been happening since Jesus started in Mark chapter 1. It says when Jesus came, he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom has always been with them, but now they can see it. And now we look back and we can see it in full living color. The transfiguration, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the giving of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. This is all what Jesus says that we who are standing here back then aren't going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming. It's coming. And they're going to see it because they all answered the question correctly with a confession that Jesus is the Christ. Is that you? Let me just say, if you are here and you're trying to figure out who is Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day in which you receive the invitation that he has given you. He says, come to me. Come to me. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have done. My life, my death, my resurrection covers it all. It is grace upon grace. Listen, grace is more than just declaring you righteous. Grace is the power of God to now helping you live out this life. And he wants to give you that grace. So repent of your sins and trust in him. And for those of us that have done that, I pray that when we end with communion, we end with a song that you rejoice all the more. You rejoice with your whole heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all of your heart, because you recognize that the grace of God has been shed abroad in your heart, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done for you. That he has called you in to be his child. And he wants to be your king. He wants to be your father. He wants to be your savior. And that should cause you to rejoice and worship. So let's do that right now by prayer. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this section of scripture. The most important scripture in the Bible is because it gives us the answer of who you are, that you are the king, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. And Lord, we pray that everyone that walks out those doors knows that truth, not just can answer the question correctly, but has experienced it and it is their confession. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.